this is Daryl. As you may know, we've been working with Grant Wall on his podcast, Football with Grant Wall. Monday's episode of Grant's podcast has a very special guest. The best guest yet, I believe, it's Jurgen Klopp. Jurgen Klopp, manager of Liverpool FC and world's leading expert in post-match victory hugs, in my opinion. So listen to Monday's episode of Football with Grant Wall for the interview with Jurgen Klopp. I will put a link to Grant's show in the show notes to this episode, so you've got no excuse for not being able to find it. Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who hasn't seen the trailer to Bill and Ted 3 face the music. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I regret to inform you that I have not. Is it Bill and Ted 3 face the music or is it Bill and Ted face the music? I said it wrong. It's Bill and okay. Ted face the music, but it is the I was third really Bill confused and Ted for a moment. Yeah. All right. Um, so we've been joking that Bill and Ted face the music uh, because of the time travel element is the title sponsor for the Champions Champions Cup of History, where we uh, pit various teams, the great teams from history against each other. But the trailer did drop uh, this past week, and I think I understand what the plot is. Um, it's that Bill and Ted screwed it up. <laughs> oh, no, really? I so find that hard to believe. Do you remember they did that massive concert with God Gave Rock and Roll to us in front of like, you know, a huge crowd and it was supposed to change the world? Um, uh, very vaguely, yes. So in the trailer, they're being asked why um, not too long after that concert, they were back to playing. The Wild Stallions were back to playing in front of 40 people in a very small room. I mean, it's a fair question. If you're going to establish them as like the greatest rock band of all time, I think you got to follow through. <laughs> and it seems that their plan is to go into the future and steal a good song from their future selves because their current selves can't come up with one. So that's that's Bill you and Ted face the music. Yeah, you never want to do that. It's always going to lead to bad things. Really, time travel in general seems like it's always going to lead to bad things. It's why full I'm sort of, of paradoxes. It. It's full mm. of paradoxes, which we have to avoid when we do the Champions Champions Cup of History. We're very careful, right? We, we repair time as we go. Um, I don't kill any butterflies. I uh, don't step on any small animals that then will have lasting ramifications. No, and I don't score own goals or uh, talk to Eleni Herrera. No, I leave everybody alone and I just observe. Exactly. That's exactly what you got to do. And who are we observing today? We are observing um, the Inter team, Internazionale mm-hmm. from Milan. <laughs> it's Internazionale Milano, right? Um, yes. From 19, basically early 60s. I'm going to say 63 to 65 um, against Marcello Lippi's Juve team of 95 to 98. Mm-hmm. Uh, first team first, La Grande Inter, um, coached by Helenio Herrera. Doing my research, Taylor, I have a newfound respect for this team. They have that. Uh, yeah, I do too. Same, and I think, and I think it's smart that you went with uh, Inter till like 1965. I think you said because we talked about this a little bit off air, but because we've already talked about that 67 team, the loss to Celtic in the final, and sort of how that went down, it does sort of bias you a little yes. bit. At least it biased me a little bit. And if you remove that and you look at this, the successes that team had when they had all the players who had bought into the system. It is a much more impressive squad. And then when you get past the whole, like, oh, it's Catanaccio, it's boring, it's the most regressive style of soccer ever, and look at it, what it actually was, yeah. it's, it's entertaining in a lot of ways. They scored some goals, that Inter team. So it really is Catanaccio, right? As in there's mm-hmm. a back four, and then they have a sweeper, Piki, who is very, very, very good. Um, and that is like that 67 final. You see them score early and then just full-on defend for the whole mm-hmm. game. But they're missing some of their beautiful, creative players that are really what make this team exciting to watch. In the early 60s, right? Because after mm-hmm. they've done the defending with Piki sweeping up, you've got creative midfielders like Luis Suarez, who was not um, not available for that, that final. You've got wingers like the Brazilian Jair, who had mm-hmm. moved on before that final. You've got uh, Mario Corso, who I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this out early, Taylor. My favorite player on this team, the left winger, Mario Corso. I that doesn't surprise me and surprises me simultaneously. I would have thought Jair because he he loves a goal, he loves taking people on. But watching Corso and the balls he plays uh, to Jair a lot of the, a lot of the time, but also the way he is on the ball and the way he has excellent vision, I guess yep. I'm also not surprised by that as well. Here's why I love Corso: socks rolled down, always a okay. plus for me. Socks rolled all the way down. How how low are we talking here? As low as they can go. I think you can <laughs> see his ankles. Uh, <laughs> socks rolled down. I don't think I saw him get to a full sprint, and I watched quite a few games for, from Inter. Um, I'd definitely call him languid. I'd definitely call him 
borderline lazy, not doing a lot of defending, playing on the left wing, but doing all kinds of just clever, quick moves, quick feet, quick passes, um, like basically skillful and uh, creative enough to make up for his lack of defensive energy. It, it's really interesting guys. with this team because, uh, first of all, Daryl, uh, your your approach to the wearing of socks and shin guards is unacceptable because everybody knows you wear those socks as high as you can. Get out. I know you do now, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, but it's also strange because, like, I remember hearing about Jair not being, uh, who Jair might be my favorite player on this team, uh, hearing it like he's not the most fleet of foot, he's not the fastest, and then I watched footage of him and he seems... More than a little quick. Yeah. So, yeah, I heard, like, oh, he was the most fit player on the team. And you watch him, and I'm sure he is very physically fit from what I read, from what I understood of Elenio Herrera. Everybody on this team was very, very fit to the point where it was almost like joining the army, is what some <laughs> players said. Um, but I, uh, but you're right that for all of that, I did see Corso sort of like, ah, I'm, I'm good. I know where yeah, I want to yeah. be. I know what I want to do. Which goes all against the sort of regimented Catenaccio defending yes. that we've come to expect of this Inter team. Before we get any deeper, it's worth noting, okay, they won Serie A in 1963. Then they won back-to-back European Cups in 1964 and 1965. So we're talking back-to-back European Cup winning team here. That's Mm. why they are so great. Um, Mario Corso is my favourite because of the language style we talked about. And also because he goes against the grain of the the stereotype of this team. But I think most people would agree that the best player on this team was Luis Suarez. And it's a player I haven't given enough attention to because I always think of him as... The other Luis Suarez. Mm-hmm. I think the Uruguayan current Luis Suarez should be the other Luis Suarez. This guy's better. Really? That's yes. a bold statement. I think they're both equally good is where I am, which is kind of a cop-out answer. But I'm with you that I assumed like this Luis Suarez, the one we're talking about uh, with Inter was like very good but he you know he's not de- definitely not at that next level and then you look at the the system that they sort of landed upon and his role within it yeah like i always kind of go with arrows to to show like where the passes would have been where the movement would have been luis suarez has a lot of arrows around him because he is very critical to the way this team both wants to defend and attack and the transition into both as well i want to call him the i think they called him the architect right i think he's like mm-hmm. an original regista type guy he wears the 10 shirts but he's sitting very very deep a lot of the time he's kind of an andrea perlo type figure i would say yeah um, I see that. when he receives the ball he's got a bit of a swerve so, right so he can go past people and accelerate out of nowhere a little bit frankie de young in that way where that the acceleration just comes but he also can put his foot on it and slow it down and it's almost like everyone else stops and just looks at luis suarez and like wow what's he gonna do next right everyone's in <laughs> awe of luis suarez and they should be because taylor at this time when he moved from barcelona to inter helenia herrera brought him from his old yep. club barcelona to inter the most expensive player in the world two 250 million lira absurd which is sounds absurd. a lot sounds a lot right it's about about 175,000 euros but you yeah. know in the mid 60s that's an awful lot of money the most expensive yeah. player in the world wearing number 10 absolutely bossing this team Here's the thing that I think is really interesting about our conversation with Inter, but about this Inter, Inter team as well, that it's Catanazio, it's Elenio Herrera, it's the team that Jacqueline wanted to destroy, and yet we have begun this conversation by only talking about their attacking players yes. and their creative players because there are a lot of them in this team. There are a lot of them. Who, who else yeah. do you like from this attacking lineup? I mean, Jair, I mentioned earlier, Jair is like the right winger who would drop in and be like another right-sided defender if the situation required, but was also the one who I think was one of their like principal outlets for transitioning from defense to attack he tended to stay a little bit further up the field but like again part of it was that i read that he's like oh not the most fleet of foot i watched him blaze past some people for sure but also what would you say i just said yeah i absolutely just agreed oh i think you said where i was like in games on the right (laughs) wing right (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) but also for all of his finishes being bashed in with his left foot it's really interesting to watch him dribble because certainly he uses his left foot sometimes, but he dribbles a lot with that right foot yeah. and then cuts it over and finishes with the left at the very end. And it feels very much like a setup. Like he sets you up and sets you up and sets you up and then cuts onto the what you think is the weaker foot but is dominant and scores. It's a lot of like cutting in and scoring from at the top of the box or 15 yards out and really well-placed shots, sometimes with power behind them, but a lot of really good placement. Uh, you see why he's such an important part of this team because he can dribble, he can go at people, and then he can obviously score the goals as well. I also saw a lot of crosses from from Jair with that right yes. foot when he does go outside. And, you know, when we watch a lot of these teams from the 50s and 60s, it's a lot of floated crosses, right, that you sort of wouldn't get away with these days. But Jair, I noticed a lot of his crosses, they were floated, but they were floated directly to someone's foot or head. So very accurate crossing from Jair when he, when he gets down on the outside. That is correct. Now I feel like we have to talk about the defense for a moment because we haven't even necessarily explained Catanaccio. How okay. deep do we want to go on that? 
not quite as deep as Peaky sits. Okay. <laughs> I mean, because I think it, you can go very, very deep. Obviously, uh, Jonathan Wilson has gone far deeper than I ever care to. Michael Cox as well. Um, but it's it's interesting to maybe pause on Catanaccio for a moment because it does become synonymous with just like, oh, very defensive teams. If you're yes. parking the bus, you're Catanaccio. That's how it works. And it's sort of correct, I guess, in the sense that it is a defensive system, obviously. But it is it does it a disservice because of this, like, the systemization the organization that's required because it's it's at times almost like a 631 sometimes it's like a 640 but it's not just get bodies behind the ball and frustrate it's the way you sort of move to pop out to defend that's yes. almost was like the telling thing to me was like oh the ball's there then i'm the one who pops out and puts pressure on oh it's switched to the other side i drop in and this person pops out but yeah. oh it's gone a little bit over now this person and it's a very rehearsed system that if you're attacking you're sort of always under pressure even when it shouldn't be the case, even when you put that big switch on, you should have tons of time. And instead, because of the way the system works, you really don't. Here's how I would describe it. Okay, we've mentioned uh, Peaky, Armando Peaky, uh, quite a few times, right? He is the sweeper, the libero. He is the free man who sits behind the defense, right, and sweeps everything up. He doesn't have to mark anybody. He doesn't have to worry about the offside line because they're just basically not doing it. Um, anything that goes through, Peaky is taking care of it, right? In front of him is a back four, and it's a pretty consistent back four of Bergnik, uh, Garneri, and Tangin are the two central defenders, and then Facchetti um, is on the left. And like mm-hmm. you said, it's not as if they all just sit back and cower and just hope that you eventually give up, right? Because they have peaky sweeping, essentially Garneri and Tangin and the fullbacks, Fagetti and Bergnich, are encouraged or at least emboldened to charge out and attack the ball, right? To charge out and defend. And I think the safety of peaking, Catanetto means door bolt, right? It means he clo- he locks yeah. the door behind everybody else. It gives them the freedom to go and take risks in terms of trying to win the ball back. Because even if mm-hmm. they get beat, they know that Peaky has got the door bolted behind them, right? The security gives them confidence to actually defend aggressively. Does that make, yeah, does that make sense? That's how I would it, describe it. it. It absolutely does. And and so I think like if you're still like a little bit confused about it, the reason why I think it is so successful is number one, it's designed to deal with the two three five, the WM, like all of the kind of prevailing systems of the time. But it also then is a combination of like you're sort of sitting in and you've got numbers behind, but then you still have people pressing at the same time. Yes. So it's this weird like pressing, pressing deep, but also right? sitting. And it, it really does kind of do the best of both worlds when it comes to the defensive side of the game. Absolutely, yeah. And then what I see is Peaky will often receive the ball after after someone's like jiggled it loose. Um, mm-hmm. It'll come through and Peaky will pick it up. And I think what's really important about this Inter team is how Peaky starts that next wave of attack, right? Mm-hmm. He'll either like hit a ball out to Corso on the left or Jair on the right, or most often I see him look for Luis Suarez and get the ball to Luis Suarez's feet. And then everybody yeah. sort of um, expands beyond uh, Luis Suarez and then he finds the pass and then into sort of counter-attack from there, right? And a, a yeah. major part of it is then the attacking fullbacks. Because again, you yeah. think about this team as a defensive, defensive, defensive. But Facchetti and Bergnik, those guys get forward. And I think uh, Giacinto Facchetti, the left-back, is the most famous in terms of getting forward from left-back. Yeah, I mean, and I think had the most license and the most ability. He's also... Uh, he hits double-digit goals, I think, both seasons. But at the very least, is like, is an incredibly attacking goal-scoring threat, and yeah. is with that in mind, like kind of the model for when you th- talk about attacking fullbacks. I think so. Is sort of where, where a lot of this originates is these these gentlemen who are sitting deep, but then suddenly they're eighty yards forward and contributing across or contributing a goal. Uh, it's it's definitely that, and it's definitely the verticality of the system, which is a thing that Her- Herrera stressed time and time again. Is maybe you can go on the dribble, but we want you to beat a few people, but we want you to dribble forward, not backward, not laterally, and we want that ball played forward aggressively. And so Fichetti goes, right? Fichetti will mm-hmm. absolutely take off down that left flank, and you can't miss him, because I think he's 100 feet tall. He's a really tall for a left back, really yeah. tall, like skinny, but muscly, if that makes sense. Yeah. Lean, I guess, is the word the word I would use. I mean, you'd, you'd have to be on this team. Right, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and once he takes off, then he's a target for Piki or for Suarez, or for mm-hmm. combinations with my favourite lazy left winger, um, Corso. In, in a way, Fichetti Fichetti's um, willingness to run up and down makes up for Corso's uh, willingness to kind of stand there and <laughs> do a few step overs. God bless him. I mean, God bless him. Fam- famously, Herrera uh, said he wanted the ball into the opposition box in three passes or fewer. So I guess if you're Corso, like, yeah, maybe you're not going to go all the way back. You're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to be here to receive that forward pass. And then I can play like the penultimate one or the final one to make things happen. I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I'm with you, Corso. My, my second favorite player actually might be uh, Sandro Mazzola. 
the number mm. eight. So Suarez was the 10. Mazzola was the eight who would be sort of like an inside right, but also come back and be a central midfielder. That was an odd system, right? Mm-hmm. But Mazzola seemed like the guy who was most annoying to the opposition. I saw him, uh, like after they play yep. some of those more direct balls, he would be the one who would chase down an opposition defender. He would be the one who would like play quick one-twos with the striker, whoever it was that week, um, and would be hitting shots from distance. I think he scores a couple um, in one of the finals. Um, Sandro Mazzola, I think, is a really important part of this team. Yeah, I, you'll get no arguments from me. And I think is also the sort of steely leader you want as yes. well, that I saw him sort of make some challenges, but then also maybe maybe just like a little more contact than was necessary. Yes. Like I think he wasn't, he wasn't pulling out of challenges. He was happy to sort of uh, dictate the physicality of things. And then, do you know about Pyro? P-E-I-R-O, the Spanish forward. Uh, the forward? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I did not pay nearly as much attention to him as I did Milani. So please, tell me about Pyro. So here's the thing. Pyro was the first choice forward if you had your strongest 11 out, right? But in Serie A, there was a two foreigner rule, a maximum of two foreigners. Right. And the two foreigners that would play the most are Luis Suarez and Jair, the Spanish, Mm -hmm. Spaniard, and the Brazilian. Pyro himself was also um, a Spaniard. He scores maybe the most controversial, uh, maybe most influential goal um, of this whole Le Grande Inter um, era in the semi-final against Liverpool in, I believe, 1965. Have you seen this goal? No. It is so clever and so cheeky, and Liverpool fans are still mad about it. So, oh, I've read about this. I haven't seen it. So here's a situation. At Anfield, Liverpool beat this Inter team 3-1, right? So it goes back to the San Siro. Um, I think Inter are 1-0 up, so they need, they need to win basically uh, 3-0 to, to make sure they win. The second goal is... That the Liverpool goalkeeper has the ball as Tommy Lawrence. Yeah, here we go. Yes, 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 yes. And yes. He, he's got oh, the ball. Yes. And he's doing that thing that goalkeepers do where they bounce it a few times before they kick it long. Um, Pyro's like hiding behind him. And as Lawrence bounces it, I think the second time, he just zips in from the side, takes the ball like as it hits the floor. Off he goes around the keeper and he scores. Liverpool are incensed. It, Fans are incensed. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's a legal play, right? Now it is. That's the key distinction ah. from what I read is that at the time, either it wasn't codified or it wasn't written in such a way that you couldn't like you couldn't physically like attack the goalkeeper to get the ball. But I think there weren't as many like restrictions on when you were allowed to make an interception or attempt to make an interception. It might have been clarified after this game. But so in, the, it, I, in the moment, I think it was not. So is what Perro did, is it like a thing that no one had imagined before? So therefore, there wasn't anything in the rules to deal with it. I'm going to guess yes. Yeah, because it is a situation where the keeper's not holding the ball, right? And Perro doesn't make physical contact with right. Lawrence, the keeper, because he he catches the ball with his foot as Lawrence is bouncing it. He doesn't body him or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's... Whereas now... Go ahead, sorry, I interrupted. I was going to say that that's sort of how, how quick thinking he was for the time, right? That he, They had to rewrite the rules after this, apparently. I didn't think I didn't. I was trying to figure out why he didn't play more. Thank you. I did, did not occur to me it was the three foreigner or yeah, the two foreigner rule. That makes way more sense. That's what it is. Um, I'm surprised he stayed. To be honest, I would not have stuck around if I was only playing like having to rotate with Jair and Suarez and maybe playing some European Cup games. But maybe he was like, afraid to make Elenio Herrera. Um, like may, maybe he didn't want to deal with him. Elenio Herrera. We should note. Uh, I already talked a little bit about the militant training. Also outlawed drinking and smoking. Yeah. Introduced the retiro. Like the very like disciplined. You got to go away just to think about the game. A very very militant manager who had a militant captain as well in the form of Peaky, somebody who we've already talked about with the kind of long ball distribution. That was the other player that I really focused on because he was pretty fun to watch. Armando Peaky. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about it because he is, he is key to this. And I said yes. that ironically because he was actually the doorbolt. But yes. what, <laughs> what, what do you know about Peaky that uh, maybe I don't know? Because I feel like we've read different uh, well, things, which I think is a good way. When we do this show, yeah. I like it when we've got different things that we're sharing. I mean, I think he was one of the only people to stand up to Herrera, which is why he leaves after 1967. But prior to that, he is the sweeper, as you mentioned, who's who's sitting in but will step out to sort of like like uh, augment or will fill the space when he needs to. But his distribution is the thing that I really, really enjoyed. As I said, they were trying to get the ball forward as quickly as possible. 
you can't really do that if you have a, a person on the ball, sweeper on the ball, who is a little bit ponderous or a little bit risk-averse. Peaky was not that at all. He had excellent vision and could thread a needle, but also wasn't afraid. I watched games where he would just turn it over immediately. Like He'll go for those long ball gambles that I think you don't see anymore, but he also simultaneously had the accuracy to pull them off most of the time. So the accuracy I appreciated, but then also, to some extent, the inaccuracy made him more exciting. It's like when we watch the U-17 World Cup and you know that there's going to be some 17 17- year old mistakes and it makes it that much more compelling it was a little bit of that 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 was like the one sort of vulnerability uh, from time to time that i could spot uh, so i obviously admire him because he he really did look like a very in control of everything mm-hmm. sweeper um the one thing i didn't like is his insistence on taking every set piece and if you notice this that? but he took um at least a couple games i saw he took every goal kick he made mm-hmm. sure that he took every goal kick and any free kicks, even if they were like over on the right wing of the defense or on the left wing, he would be the one that would sort of make sure that he was out there taking them and just wouldn't let anyone else. He wouldn't trust anyone else to pass a ball forwards, basically. It yeah. was everything had to go through Peaky, which I guess just speaks to his uh, dominant personality, right? For, be- yeah. for better and sometimes for worse. <laughs> for better and sometimes for worse. Well said. So before we talk about today's opponent, are you ready to move mm-hmm. on to today's ad read? I believe I am. Should we talk about our friends at Manscaped? Yes, today's show is sponsored by Manscaped. Um, Mm -hmm. Manscaped wanting to know that if and when we reopen from coronavirus, Mm -hmm. um, you might be aware that maybe you haven't been grooming as well as you could have been. Um, You don't want to ruin your first post-quarantine date with things being a little bit fuzzy if you know what i mean <laughs> you wouldn't show up <laughs> really to the well said. you wouldn't show up to the first day of school without a haircut you shouldn't go out without um taking care of business and we know that to go out and get a haircut i have had one uh since businesses started reopening in richmond you've got to wear the mask they're not going to groom the beard for you uh, they're not going to do that like level of contact but you can handle your own grooming situation at home. You don't have to go out. You don't even have to wear a mask. You can if you want to out of a sense of solidarity. But you could just stay home and take care of things, which you do need to do. Because if you are going on that first date and it's been like three months, uh, yeah, things could be out of control. You don't want that to be the case. You can use the Lawn Mower 3.0, mm-hmm. which is the best hygiene tool for the modern man. It's got the ceramic blade and skin-safe technology. Um, there will be no snags, or at least your snags will be greatly reduced. Um, no snags when you are preparing yourself for post-quarantine life. Fingers crossed. That's right. And Daryl, do you know the best thing of all about all of this, aside from the fact that people are considering maybe possibly going outside once again? What's that, Tyler? You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code TSS20. Your first date will thank you. And fingers crossed that coronavirus will let us go out sometime soon, right? I don't want anyone to take this ad read as meaning it's okay to go out now. Don't wear a mask. Don't be citing Daryl and Taylor reading a Manscaped ad as it's no. time to go out. Wear a mask. Wear, wear a, a mask. mask. Yes. Oi. Um, all right, Taylor. <laughs> Let's talk Juventus. Wear a mask, Black Lives Matter. All right, cool. We're going to go? Yeah. Let's talk Juventus. Juventus mm. from 95 to 98, which we're roughly calling the Marcello Lippi era. Right? Yes. They win Serie A in 95. They win the Champions League against Ajax in 96. They make the Champions League final in 97 and 98, but f- lose in the final. But they do win Serie A in 97 and 98. Here's the weird thing about this team. Marcello Lippi was so hell-bent on improving it every year that it's really hard to name a starting eleven from this era because there's massive, massive, massive turnover, right? Um, yes. And so I don't fully know where to start, except to, to give people a rough idea. Um, this is the like mostly the Zidane era, the Alessandro Del Piero era, to give you names that you recognize. Um, one name that's there the whole way through, Del Piero is there the whole way through, right? Because he's Juve mm. the whole way through. Um, Didier Deschamps, I believe, is the defensive midfielder, the anchor, the whole way through this era. He is not for the first Champions League final because it's pa- uh, Paolo Sousa. Right, but he's there, right? He's part of the he team. He is there. Yes. Yes, yes yeah. he is. He I'm not is. saying he played he, every game for five years. I'm just saying that he is a consistent throughout this era. Yes. And the other like, pretty much consistent players would be the fullbacks for the team, although they were rotated through a lot. But that was kind of uh, Michael Cox in the book Zonal Marking does a really good job of kind of explaining why Lippi was so focused on change. And it was essentially that he wanted certain players who identify, who like sort of represented his idea of what you, they were supposed to be, which was 
very hardworking, very like interested in his tactical decisions, didn't necessarily need to be superstars. It's why they sort of avoided superstars to the extent possible or to the extent that they were willing to do so, um, but instead would have sort of journeymen or like lower league historically fullbacks who would come in and sort of do the job and get it done and those are the players he relied on we're talking Pesato and Takinadi yes and Parini exactly right a lot of guys like that Pesato especially I think was just willing to run up and down all day willing to play left back even though he was right footed he would not let you down um, no. another guy I put in this category I think a guy that really um, encapsulates his whole team I think he's a guy that's there the whole time as well Antonio Conte who everyone will now know as what the coach at Inter, former coach at uh, Chelsea and Juve and the Italian national team. Antonio Conte would be one of those midfielders that played along Deschamps mm-hmm. and was just willing to run up and down and up and down the field all day long, right? Not the greatest footballer in the world. He is not Zidane. He is not Del Piero, but he is willing to do the hard work that makes him a very valuable member of the team to play alongside Zinedine Zidane and Del Piero. Absolutely. And it's and when we're talking about the champ, like it's it's the Deschamps who eventually gets called the water carrier by Eric Cantona yeah. because all he does is work really hard and he doesn't have the flair or the technical ability of Zidane. Yeah. And I love that that was this like stinging criticism from Cantona to which Deschamps responded like, yeah, pretty much. Like, that's yeah. correct. Because carried, that's what was being asked. I carried the water all the way to winning a Champions League and winning the World yes. Cup. That's pretty much what he said. Yeah. Yes. What did he carry um, into the crowd against Crystal Palace? Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and that is a sort of other key component of this team. Though there was uh, variety, though they would switch up the formation, they would switch it up within the game. Like sometimes three or four times Lippi would change it. You did sort of have the 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 hardworking central midfielders that then allowed for the more kind of free-flowing attack to happen. It's why Zidane wasn't really tracking back to do a ton of defending. It's because he had usually three people who tucked inside behind him to handle that responsibility. So my understanding is there, there were always three hardworking midfielders behind three attacking players, right? And the attacking players were yeah. normally an attacking midfielder and two strikers. And we can talk about those strikers. Uh, but even with Zidane, from what I've read and what I've seen actually... They are expected to do some defensive work, right? It's not as if they sure, can just stand yeah. there and like think, ah, Deschamps and Conte and Delivio, they'll take care, they'll take care of all the running. What they what they did defensively, from what I could see, was close down passing lanes, right? Mm-hmm. So Zidane's not charging people down and getting in people's faces, right? He's not like a an all out pressing kind of midfielder that you would expect that you would he's not that's not what you would expect, right? But what he did do and what say say if it's Del Piero and Boxic playing up front, um, uh, alongside him or just ahead of him they will between them close off loads of passing lanes so it's already from the start really hard for the opposition team to make any progress and if they do make any progress then you've got that hard-working hard-tackling midfield just behind them and if they make any progress beyond that then you've got that hard-working uh, Juve defense uh, behind them right so that made mm-hmm. Juve really really hard to break down yeah, and, and and it's a credit to Lippi, who uh, is certainly a master coach, but he's also a master of uh, adapting when he needs to. Uh, in the, I believe, the first final, like he has a front three. like He just plays an out-and-out front three, attacking three, and lets everybody else sort of do the work. But then, yeah, as the Don comes in, it's sort of like, well, yeah, we're going to do everything we can to kind of get him in the situation he needs to be to thrive. So as you mentioned, that's when you go with a front two with one behind, and you still have the three forward, but it is very different than the team that came before. And obviously that's because some of those big name players had moved on uh i was reading about that i don't know if you if you saw that but it was uh ravinelli and viali move on because of the bosman ruling basically <laughs> that they're able to move on for freeze because juve sort of hadn't adapted to the fact that players could then leave but they constantly look who they brought in there right they brought in yes. what zidane uh, christian vieri and mm-hmm. alan boxic right so that's that's mm-hmm. maybe an improvement and then uh, alessandro del piero gets a year older um, i'm going to mm-hmm. say a net improvement when you uh, when you bring all that in and i know vieri mm-hmm. scores a scores a decent amount of goals they sell him on for even more the next year right so it's constantly like it's almost like it's not it's not that Lippi has a really complicated tactical system um it's more like he has principles right that the team mm-hmm. plays by but then because the principles are so strong you kind of can chop and change um like who who the players are within that within that team provided they all buy into the principles and they're all of a high enough either quality or a high enough work rate yeah, with, a, a with all due respect to Antonio Conte. 
Yes, but it's a thing that we've talked about a lot. Like I think you and I have talked about it throughout the years in relation to Manchester United and the idea that like when they do their their rondos, that there's the one you want to be in, that that's the ultimate one, and like you want to get to that level. But it's it's brought about by this idea of the players who've been there instill that idea in the players that are coming in, and yeah. that's very much what this Juve team were. Is you had the sort of veterans, be they the fullbacks or Deschamps or whomever, who would put that arm around the new guy and say like, hey. Nice dribbling. We don't do that. Do it this way. Like, they were not afraid to kind of get in your face and, and cause a lot, like, not cause problems that way, but sort of make you buy into the system as opposed to make the system adjust to meet the, the new face, which again is why there was that sort of aversion to the super duper stars who were going to make things all about them. I also want to talk about the defense. Um, Chiro Ferrara, we talked about briefly when we talked is about. He's my favorite. We talked about him with Maradona's <laughs> Napoli, right? So he's been mentioned before. That yes. was in his younger days. Peak Chiro Ferrara plays for Juventus and he is and this weird mix of aggressive monster of a defender combined with about. like an elegant gentleman right he just yep. somehow can do both and also I, I watched an interview with him where he looks to be seven feet tall he looks absolutely gigantic part of that is because uh, he's in there with uh, Angelo Delivio who I then realized was five foot six I think which is why <laughs> But it's also you'd be forgiven for thinking him a giant because on the field, that is how he plays. He has that that size that, again, even though he's 5'11", he just looks massive when you watch him play. And he is the master of what I'm calling the humiliation tackle, <laughs> where he will either, like, get the ball very, very legally, but then also make sure to get a piece of you. So you go flying or you get knocked over, but he has won the ball cleanly, so it's legal. Or the other aspect of the humiliation tackle is he tackles the ball into you, the attacker, and then it goes off of you and out for a throw-in or a goal kick or a, or a turnover. So either you get knocked over, but he's legally won the ball, or you're sort of forced into turning the ball over via his tackle. But either way, his slide tackles were a sight to behold. Whenever I see anything about this, the Juve's central defenders, the quote that keeps coming up is Ryan Giggs saying that the defensive partnership of uh, Ferreira uh, sorry, Ferrara and Paolo Montero is the best defense he's ever come mm-hmm. up against. So Montero signs in, I believe, 96, Uruguayan defender. And from what I've seen, he's very similar to Chiro Ferrara in that he's um, aggressive but elegant enough. Like Everything's well-timed, even though it's really strong. But Montero brings an extra level of competitiveness that appears to be the cause for him leading Serie A in total red cards, ever. <laughs> <laughs> he is the all-time red card leader with 16 total red cards in Serie A. I think I'm surprised by that. Oh, but then I remember that Felipe Melo had some loan, loan spells abroad, and that's probably the only reason why he didn't <laughs> uh, get higher than that. So, and uh, Montero also says uh, that it's basically all about his competitiveness. He would do anything to win. He, I've, I've seen all the, I got really into the mentality of Montero. Um, he mm-hmm. talked about how football is just about winning, right? He understands why... Uh, strikers dive right but then like on the flip side they have to understand why he why he will maybe punch them in the face or do anything that's necessary to win the game that's not a direct quote but it's like a paraphrasing of multiple different quotes and uh, instances I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've gone with uh, Montero on this one because I, I did sort of have my combined 11 and that was the only – I had 10 of the 11 and I wasn't sure who my other center back was going to be alongside Chiro Ferrara. But I'm happily to put Montero in there now. Were you leaning Uliano? Not really. I just wasn't sure entirely which one I wanted to go with because I, I did not pay nearly as attention to them as I did to Chiro Ferrara. <laughs> I could not come up with a combined 11 because like a, a year later, say 97, 98, you end up with uh, Pippo Enzaghi, who we think of mm-hmm. as that Milan player, but he's at Juve for like four years, right? He Pippo sure Enzaghi joins the strike force, right? So um, eventually you've got Del Piero, Ravanelli, Viali, Christian Vieri, Alan you, you Bossage. Say, when you say eventually, you mean these are all the people that they like employed during this time? Yes, yeah, during this time period cool. uh, and, and Pippo Enzaghi and I think Amoruso I'm not sure where he came from but he seems to be a name mm-hmm. that is always in and around uh, this Juve team you've got like six he was another strikers. one of those guys who um, he, like, I think he was the one who had like only ever played in Serie B like like four of their fullbacks at various points had all come from like Serie B or Serie C, like C or had bounced around were all journeymen I think one was signed from an amateur team like it is not about the big names when it comes <laughs> yeah. to certain positions with this Juve squad so because there's so many is there anyone you want to spotlight and talk about like should we talk about Zidane should we talk about Del Piero is there anyone else that pops out at you uh, I mean, probably Zidane. I think just because it's Zinedine Zidane. We've already talked about him a little bit, but just that he's 
this is the the moment when he sort of elevates himself to that global superstar. It's obviously uh, when he moves from Juve to Real Madrid is when that is sort of solidified. But I think it's what Lippi does with Zidane and how he deploys him and sort of gives him the freedom of attack. Certainly not that much freedom because, again, it's an Italian team. There's lots of tactical discipline and lots of physical discipline. But the like the positions he's in, he's not going to score a billion goals. He's not Michel Platini in that in that regard. But he's just going to either set people up, occasionally score goals, but lots of times like distract defenders or find space or open up space and all of that sort of variability is what makes him so so important and so impressive in my mind i mean even in early zidane right so he sounds from bordeaux in 96 so you can see him in the 96 97 98 seasons so that's in the run-up to him winning the world cup with france right um you can see the zidane that we know and love from the 2000s where he puts his foot on the ball and starts moving the ball around and slows it all down. And it's almost like he's daring people to take the ball off of him, right? And he mm-hmm. will dribble slowly and laterally across the top of the box. And then, like, outside of the foot, surprise pass. And Del Piero or Vieri or Boxic is is in on goal. So you do see the... Uh, He's, it's very much there. The late, the later Zidane that we sort of are more familiar with, it's absolutely there in 1996. He is, he, he has a full head of hair still, but you know that it's going to go. You know that it's going to go. <laughs> that future Zidane yeah. is in there. Full, full is a word. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's got hair. Yeah, I'll give you that much. Yeah, he's got coverage. There, there... He'd be getting a signal. Just maybe just one bar. <laughs> <laughs> there is another name I want to mention, but I want to mention that when we get to the matchups themselves. Aside from that, what what I had as my sort of ultimate 11 coming out of this, I had uh, Angelo Peruzzi in goal. I had Pesotto and Torricelli as my two fullbacks with Ferrara and now Montero as my uh, like my two more center backs. Uh, midfield, because we haven't even mentioned his name, but he does end up joining, is Edgar Davids. Yes! I've got Edgar Davids, Deschamps, and uh, Antonio Conte with Zidane ahead of them, and then Del Piero and Christian Vieri, because Il Monstre, come on, i got to have him in there. So could that team ever have been on the field at the same time, or are you having to overlap some eras? There's some overlapping eras, Okay, I but it's still, it's still pretty strong, right? This is why Juve go back to the... They go to this Champions League final three times in a row, basically, right? And then in yes. 99, the only reason they don't make it is because they come up against Roy Keane and that Man United team. And they even then almost make it. I think they go out on away almost. goals, right? Yeah, They do. So, yeah, yes, they do. Yeah, this was the most feared team in Europe for like four or five years. If anything, they should have had more European Cups, more Champions Leagues. Yeah. And, and I think part of the reason why they don't is because players moving on. But part of the reason why they're able to have the sustained success is because they plan for players to move on. Like, I was, I wanted to look at why Zidane ended up leaving. And I was assuming it was sort of this protracted thing where Juve didn't want to let him go. Juve let him go early. Like, they wanted him gone because they had already lined up Pavel Nedved. Like, that's how good Juve are, is they identify that player who's going to be the next player, even while they have the current next player yeah. in their squad. And that sort of ability to bring in that talent, it's obviously a hallmark of Juve from the monetary standpoint but it's also how they were able to get to the status they have today is by the the success they have had uh, very frequently throughout their history yeah they got so what 2001 i want to say they sell zidane and i'm i think they get like 50 60 million for him right don't mm-hmm. they like really they do well because that's big 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 yeah, money back then yeah um all right so do you want to get to the matchup yeah i think so i have inter winning this so I was the most undecided I've been, I think, of any of these matchups. And I was leaning Juve, but I can pretty easily be talked into Inter, I think. Yeah, I think this, one, this is a close one. And yeah. if I'm honest, the only reason I have Inter winning this um, is just because I can name a starting eleven, and it's a consistent team, <laughs> whereas yeah. Juve's is just coming and going. If, I had to, if you put me in a corner and made me argue for it, I'd tell you that, well, Inter got it done two years back-to-back, Whereas Juve like won the won the Champions League on penalties and then lost to Dortmund and then Real Madrid uh, for the following two years, right? But that's just me looking for arguments. If I'm honest, um, you can maybe think of it tactically in terms of like maybe the peaky sweeper system. If you're Pippo and Zaghi trying to be born offside, that there's just no space for you to do it because Peaky's sweeping everything up. Um, maybe uh, the uh, the attacking fullback from like Fichetti would would be able to find space um, on the wing for, against Juve, but I don't know that for sure, right? I'm just I'm just trying to think of reasons so the the other thing i think that makes this matchup so compelling is all of the similarities despite how different they are from the approach of you know what herrera is going to do you know who his 11 is going to be whereas lippy is going to change it up and try different things those two things aside 
these two teams are really, really similar. It starts with the fitness. As we talked about with Herrera, he demands absolute fitness. He demands everybody kind of buy into a system. That means no drinking. That means no smoking. You've got to eat the right food. You've got to exercise properly. You have to be fit. In reading about that Juve team, uh, their their trainer, do you know Giampiero Ventrone? No. Did you come across that name? He is their trainer, a.k.a. the Marine, who was popular, uh, who was not popular at all, but enjoyed phrases like die but finish. That was one of his mantras for how much he wanted them to train. And there are many, many stories of players coming into Juventus and being told, like, hey, you better come and fit because it's going to be a problem. And players thinking, like, ah, I'm really good shape. I was in the best shape of anybody on my team, my old team, and then, like, throwing up immediately into practice because <laughs> they were that physically fit. So there's, you're going to have them being very physically fit. You also will have them both having that Italian mentality, which is a hallmark of Catanaccio, and then it, I think it sends to this Juve team that if you're up 1-0, that's fine. We are happy to win 1-0. That is the kind of Italian identity that I think stands out to this day is it's not boring. It's just that we want the win. Yeah. And if we're up 1-0, we are happy to sit back and defend and make you make the mistakes, and Juve will do that as well, certainly. They will I, prey upon your vulnerability by sitting in and then counterattack. And it does sound like you're stereotyping, but when you go back and look at the results from like Juve winning Serie A, for example, it's a lot of 1-0, 2-1, 1-0, There's no blowouts, right? There's no, and there's no 4-3s. There's a lot of um, just solid 1-0, 2-1 wins. Yeah, because it, it's, it's a practicality. It's not even like, to me, it's not even a bad thing. It's just a practical way of viewing soccer. It's, we can go out and score four goals. Uh, Juve did that plenty, certainly. Inter did that plenty, certainly, as we've talked about. But if you're going up against in a European final and the opponent is very strong too, if you're up 1-0, as you said, I think in the very beginning, you are content to then sit back and be like, all right, you guys got to find a way to play through this. We're happy to sit back and make that happen. And I think maybe as we get to like 1967, that isn't as effective because of injuries, because players are a little bit older, because some people still aren't there. But in this younger generation, I think... It would have been problems for Juve. And then what it comes down to for me is Lippi, with the variability, sometimes that works well, and sometimes he's a genius, and sometimes it doesn't, and they lose two Champions League finals in a row. <laughs> so why, why did you bring up the trainer? Is it just because you'd forgot mm -hmm. to mention him when we were talking about Juve, or does the fitness have some impact on this, this game? I think it's, Inter 64 I think it's versus just Juve from the 90s. Yeah, just that, like, I know we kind of removed the fitness aspect from the historical equation, that, like, modern teams are going to be more fit than their 1960s counterparts, just because sports science has evolved, our understanding of the human body has evolved. But that, this is an inter-team that, like, stressed that so much for their time period, that if we were going to kind of, like, bring them into the modern era, they're going to struggle with no back pass. But the fitness issue is probably one that we really have to a much lesser degree than we had when, say, like, Arsenal played, like, uh, the 1950s Madrid or when Hanved was involved. Like, I didn't really have to make myself remove that from the equation. Instead, I was thinking, like, they're, they're a really fit team. This is going to be prob a problem for you then. <laughs> So yeah, I'm I'm still giving this to Inter because yeah, I agree with you that maybe the fitness we can equalize that, right? Especially mm. given Inter the fitness for the time. And then I would even argue that Inter have more individual talent um because there's just a lot more players like like Fichetti, um is a standout left back versus Pesato was a useful workman like left back and he works within mm. the context of that Juve team but player for player you could argue that Inter are the superior team I think you could and then I think you could also argue that above it all is Herrera who is the kind of main name when you think of this Inter team there's not there are stars we've talked about them there are key players we've talked about them but Herrera sort of is the star of that team and it's worth noting there uh, this again comes from Michael Cox's book about his dedication to opposition research that I'm adding this in here as well that it is sort of if we're giving them the month to sort of prepare and learn about each other uh, there's, a, there's a maybe apocryphal story that the opposition research from Herrera was so detailed that Inter players could identify opposition players without seeing their picture because it was like oh he's going to be here he's going to do that he's going to cut inside and he's going to be like this and players could kind of spot that immediately and so even from an opposition research learning about each other whereas Lippi has the versatility and he'll change things up Herrera is going to know a lot of what Lippi does and a lot of what these players do and a lot of how they're going to vary it up and we'll be able to deal with that accordingly. So I think I've gone from maybe Juve to I'm all in on Inter winning this one. The the one, like, if we're playing devil's advocate, the one wrinkle here is you can do as much research as you want about Zinedine Zidane. That's and true. maybe even Alessandro Del Piero, who we haven't talked about much. And he's in his younger days here, right? He's in his very early 20s in this era. And he has, like, a lot more years with Juve, like, in the early 2000s. Um, 
but he's still a magnificent player who can dribble at you and change direction mm-hmm. and do unexpected things. There's a lot of attacking talent um, on that Juve team. I think in the end, I'm just going with the faith that that having Bergnich, Guarneri, Tangnin and Facchetti coming at you and then Piki sweeping up behind will be enough to uh, to like to really frustrate um frustrate Juve. Um actually maybe a good parallel is in the final against Dortmund. I didn't watch it but I did read that Dortmund did a really good job in the Champions League final when they beat Juve of just essentially crowding out Zinedine Zidane and getting a lot of bodies around him and just tackling him. Maybe that's the research that uh, Herrera does. Does the same to Zidane with Ganeri and Tagnin, gets around him, messes him up, but with Piki still still sweeping up yeah. behind. Maybe that's what that's what this game turns on, is Herrera I mean, nullifying could, Zidane. It could be that. It could also be, I mean, if you're doing opposition research on Zinedine Zidane, the word hothead might come to mind. And you could probably also rile him up a little bit. One of the only, like, three players to get uh, red cards in different World Cups, Zinedine Zidane. We obviously know that one. So oh, is, I think maybe you can wind him up that way, too. One of the games I watched was a 96 Serie A game. Um, it was Perugia versus Juventus. And there was Zidane and Matarazzi getting into it. Uh, Matarazzi <laughs> was a young centre-back um, on a Perugia team. Yeah, And weirdly, right. playing right-back for Perugia, I, I'm guessing on loan, was uh, Gennaro Gattuso. Um, mm-hmm. And also worth remembering, those are the wow. players that win the World Cup for Marcello Lippi in 2006. Marcello Lippi goes on to be that guy that wins the World Cup for Italy. Not that, this, not that that has any bearing on this Juve team, but really worth remembering what a great figure Marcello Lippi is in the sport of soccer. There we are. So that seems a good note to end on. I think... I would say this, right? If they played this game three times, I think Juve win two of those three. I think they win the second and the third, but we're going with the first, and I think Inter are winning that one. So I'm putting Inter through. Even if maybe they played this home and away, I think the result changes. Go on, Luis Suarez. Original Luis Suarez, (laughs) as I'm going to call him. Let's hope they draw Barcelona, and then we get a Luis Suarez versus Luis Suarez. We'll have a Suarez off. Will we? Or is that still possible? I'm actually not sure Luis Suarez is in this one. He's not, no, because I guess the, uh, the Luis Enrique Barcelona didn't quite make the tournament, did it? Oh. Well, what a shame. So he's the sole shame. representative of the name Luis Suarez in this tournament. It means he's the real Luis Suarez. I think we've established it sure for sure is. now. He sure is. Um, anything else to add, Taylor, before we close this down? Uh, I have a thing I've been watching, if, people are, if we're doing that one. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'd forgotten about that. But yes, tell me. Please tell me. All right. I, I'm kind of obsessed with the new show. It, it, it requires a certain level of like things that you enjoy, but it's a show called Alone, and I am all about Alone right now. It is essentially real Survivor, like, or the other way you could see it is um, sort of nonviolent Hunger Games. Like, it's, <laughs> I think it's 11 people are dropped off in just some wilderness area. They're all in their own different zones. They don't interact with each other, and then it's basically who can stay alive in the wilderness the longest, and it's pretty compelling. How do people drop out? Please tell me they don't die or something. No, they have a radio and they, they have to say, like, I'm officially tapping out. So, like, if they break a leg or if they're like, it goes so break long. A leg. People, drop, people like, break their leg. Yeah, because it's because you've got un- uneven terrain. And if you're a little bit cavalier in your attitude, that may come back to bite you. You might maybe be using the knife the wrong way. You accidentally cut yourself. Now you're bleeding out. But more often than not, I think it's like once you get to the second month, people have dropped 30 pounds. And then it becomes about do you have the energy? Are you starving? Can you survive? It is not as bleak as I'm making it sound because it's a lot of you've never cared more about is this person that I don't know going to catch a fish than you do in that moment. <laughs> and it's compelling from that standpoint as well. But it's is on Netflix right now. Is this person who's lost 30 pounds going to catch a fish? Please let him catch the fish. Oh, man. And sometimes <laughs> they don't. The and it is rough. <laughs> yes. He needs the fat, Daryl. That's what I learned. It's not about protein. It's about fat. Oh, man. Boom. I... Yes. I'm learning new things for our... <laughs> in, in case people don't take our advice to wear a mask to heart and we end up needing to live in the wilderness by ourselves. <laughs> uh, now I at least know that uh, elk meat alone will not make you uh, survive. So I don't have the constitution to watch that i don't think yeah. but if i did have the constitution to watch that where would i find it i believe the first six seasons are on netflix okay um the one i watched was in the arctic but then i think there's one in a swamp i'm ready for the swamp one <laughs> i might sort of like just dip in and check it out just yeah. to see if it's as horrific as i imagine but it's i'll, I'll give you this it sounds interesting uh, Oh, and I will, I should add this. This is a key point that I left out. They're all like trained survivalists. Like they've like one dude like lived I feel with, better. like a, I feel like better tri- lived with a tribe in Siberia for three years and like learned how to forage in the winter. So they've all had like incredible experience. It's not just amateur people okay. learning. So it's all these people like making snares and knowing how to do stuff. So it's not like Steve from accounting. 
is new. <laughs> okay, I feel better. I already feel better. There you go. Um, I am still watching Dark. It is mm-hmm. getting deeper and deeper and scarier and scarier and more and more fascinating. When I started watching it, I didn't even know that it has all kinds of like time travel and interconnectedness to it. It's kind of scratching the OA itch that I still have that I yeah. couldn't find it. That's going to be a recommendation for some people. That's going to be a no thanks for some other people, right? The other, I, I've heard it. I've heard it is like lost but you believe that they're actually going somewhere yes that's it that's a much much better way of uh saying it yeah and i believe they said there's going to be three seasons to tell the whole story and there have been two seasons so far i'm at the end of the first season the recommendation i'll give is it's so good that i am like um uh dealing it out to myself one episode a day i'm not watching more than one episode a day i'm just taking it slow and and doing it like that it sounds like that's the approach for that depth of a show like you got to kind of process it read the yes. message boards i'm guessing and know where you're at before you start the next yes one. pretty much yeah that's exactly it um in terms of it's telling it's telling of the times that we're in daryl that the shows we're recommending are alone and dark yeah. <laughs> um the other thing i've been watching which i didn't expect mm-hmm. to is clone wars the uh the star really? wars cartoon um, I think I was logged into Disney Plus. You may know that I have a Disney Plus subscription. Um, no, yeah. um, and I, I just saw it advertised that like the final season is up, um, is coming, or yeah, is live. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm interested in this. And I think I started like season five, just like sort of halfway through, thinking I can like go through this to the end. And you know what? It's surprisingly good. It's sort of like what you would want the prequels to have been. It's like a good version of the Star Wars prequels. Are you, do you like animation in that format? Like, are no, you usually a fan of it that? Took okay. me, it took me an episode or two to get over it because they're slightly like, mm-hmm. like everyone's eyes are too big. And the, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like a very non. They're all like very skinny, right? They're like twig like with big eyes. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a certain like style of animation that is like, like emphasizes mm-hmm. like things, right? In, in that way. So yeah, that was, that was kind of what put me off to begin with. But I realized that after an episode or two, you kind of just forget it and just watch. Yeah. And yeah, yeah I find it really well written and, Again, it's like it's what I wish the movies had been in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I think George Lucas is still involved, so I'm sure there's a lot of unnecessary backstory oh, and I, rules and regulations. But it's fine. I think he's kind of like executive, executive, executive okay. producing. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, all right, so that's what we've been watching. Um, Inter versus Juve is what we've been imagining. Congratulations mm-hmm. to Inter. What we're looking forward to, Taylor, is a weekend Very review right. with Taylor Rockwell and Ryan Bailey. Um, that is true. A Premier League refresher on Tuesday. Yes, and then the actual return of the Premier League on Wednesday. We will be reviewing both of Wednesday's games. We're going to watch them and review them in depth. And then we'll do the same going forward because we're imagining a lot of interest in those Premier League games as it comes back. All right. And then I think, as you mentioned, speaking of the return of the Premier League, that's a thing that uh, Grant Wall and I talked about very briefly uh, on his uh, episode this week, which also has Jurgen Klopp. You talked about that, I think, before the TSS music rolled. But uh, if people I haven't, didn't hear I that, haven't yet, but I will have by the time people hear that. There we go. Uh, yeah, then that's, that is certainly worth checking out to hear uh, Jurgen Klopp's thoughts on how many games it will take. I think that's a question that Grant asked him. Uh, but then me and Grant talk a little bit about the return of the Premier League and what we're most excited about as well. Can't decide who I'm more interested in hearing from, Taylor Rockwell or Jurgen Klopp. Um, I guess I'll I'll just have to listen and find out, see who does the best. I don't even have a joke. It's Jurgen Klopp. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, I'll close by saying thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I mean, hurtful, but right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again tomorrow.